Um, well, I hope I'm, I'm speaking very much as a, a uh, sort of practitioner um, who's dabbled in academia and certainly been involved in the military. Uh, I would call them think tanks, but doctrine and concept centres. So I hope. Um, uh, I, I don't in any way tarnish the reputation of Oxford University over the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Uh, the title, uh, Stabilisation, Security, Capacity Building, very much sort of buzzwords from sort of contemporary operations, or indeed maybe the way operations have been conducted in the near past, as opposed to perhaps how they might be conducted in the future. Uh, what I'm trying to do is, uh, is trying to develop the link between the way conflict is, is looked at and managed uh, and what we can draw from maybe non-conventional sources. Uh, certainly the business schools um, uh, originally drew their inspiration from, from the military, but maybe the, there's a, a reverse flow that could take place now. And social science in the broadest sense um, as as been uh, as coming as becoming vogue certainly in military circles in order to to, uh, to again draw uh, inspiration. So my underlying theme really is one of of the military and innovation uh, and where we draw our ideas from uh, for uh, framing conflict. Um, and bearing in mind that war now and conflict is a much sort of broader concept and beyond the military as a result of our experiences. Um, I always feel that when we enter into a period of uncertainty, as perhaps we are now in terms of how we deal and, and uh, frame conflict, and my evidence for that is sort of, you know, I was a defence fellow at King's College London for the last nine months, and I, you know, on some of the big subjects I listened to some pretty distinguished people coming from entirely different directions on how we should progress. So I, I think there's a degree of, of sort of... Um, of different ways in which we can navigate the complexity of operations, but I think that as we as we enter into this sort of this period, that there's more there's a greater need to understand or to to look at from it from a conceptual point of view, to, to more conceptualisation. Where at the moment, certainly in the British Army, we focused in the last few years on writing doctrine uh, based on the evidence from operations. And I think perhaps now we need to start thinking uh, conceptually about a number of things which I'll touch on as the features of, of the way conflict is, is going, one might say. Just looking back, um, I remember when I was a Staff College student 20-odd uh, years ago, uh, and then uh, conceptually there was only one book on the shelves, and this was a book by Richard uh, Simpkin called Race the Swift. And, and I don't recall seeing any other sort of conceptual thinking. Most of our education was, was lessons from history. Uh, which I'm sure Hugh Strawn would uh, would recommend, but historical analysis was not enough, I don't think. But then again, you could say our, our operations were relatively straightforward, and uh, uh, when you think about what what happened on the North German Plain. But uh, in in his his book, John Nagel uh, draws attention to the fact that the British Army was uh, going through a period of innovation, was showing a, a high degree of imagination and flexibility, albeit tactically in Northern Ireland, uh, as we fought that ongoing battle, uh, that competition with the with the IRA. And as Nagel says, that that was probably in our DNA as a sort of throwback from colonial policing days. 
Um, you probably uh, know, you might well know, the way that uh, military thinking has sort of progressed. Um, we had the Bagnall reforms that looked at other ways in which, and we're talking about sort of 80s, 90s now, in which uh, the military viewed uh, the attritional battle, it became one of manoeuvre. Um, however, uh, when Rupert Smith took uh, um, the division out to Gulf War One in the early 90s, that division didn't look that much dissimilar from its World War II uh, predecessor. And, and also, when I think now uh, of the, the sort of um, uh, renaissance of, uh, of information ops and psyops and all things to do with the information environment, I sort of recall back to my time at Staff College, when not only did we have, I think it was a 45-minute period on peacekeeping, but we had a novelty lecture from the only psychological operations officer in the Army, one Lieutenant Colonel on his lonesome. Uh, and that was the, um, uh, that was the sole uh, representation of this, uh, of, this dedicate, uh, of this particular lost art. Although, uh, General Rupert Smith did resurrect that as a result of the, 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 the need for psychological operations, particularly deception uh, as a result of his experiences in Gulf War I. One thing happened in the 90s, which was the American-generated uh, revolution in military affairs that sought, uh, once again, to simplify war through this, you know, if you recall, the dominance of technology, being able to see and maneuver and strike. Um, and that sort of reinforced at the time existing military cultures, particularly air forces, and encourages a military or reinforced a military education that was based on the hard sciences. We had a staff college, and before people went to a staff college, they went to the Royal Military College of Science. And there were no social sciences there. Um, certainly not in my experience. What changed the game was obviously the Balkan, Syria, and the Middle East and recent operations, where I think what I'm saying is we would have adapted our armoured forces, um, our conventional forces, uh, and some of our thinking. Um, but you know, perhaps there's been one or two uh, developments in conflict in the last few years that that require us to, to make a... I'm not talking about a paradigm change. I'm just saying just a, perhaps a, a further jump uh, leap into the dark, um, rather than constantly adapting what we've, what we've got, although we are very good. My personal view as an army, we are very good at adapting, adapting things. And so General, Con General John Kisley recently wrote about the postmodern warrior, uh, and that uh, really looking at the nature of contemporary operations and how that, as he was the head of the Defence Academy, how that might, uh, what would what that mean in terms of preparing and training and educating a generation of officers, uh, and the challenges of wicked problems, and uh, handling the sort of complexity that we see, see today. Um, so um, there's a quote that sort of uh, sent me on this particular journey, and it's, uh, it starts off, and I won't, I won't read it all out. It says, just as law at its borders merges with history, politics, economics, sociology, and psychology, so also does the military skill. And he goes, this person goes on to say, the fact, like the lawyer and the doctor, he, the military practitioner, is con con continuously dealing with human beings, uh, requires him to have a deeper understanding of human attitudes, motivation, behaviour, which a liberal education stimulates. Now, that was uh, Samuel Huntington writing 50 years ago, um, and uh, perhaps um, ahead, of, ahead of his time. The... Um, in terms of uh, uh, where, where is conflict going, well, you know, Clausewitz says that um, you know, every age, and this age is, has its own 
features, its own peculiarities and nightmares. Uh, and I'll touch on some of those now, which I suspect you'll be familiar with. But I think they drive the next, the next step is where do we gain our inspiration from? Uh, you know, which bookshelf do we go to to pull out the, to pull out the books uh, to tell us or guide us how we might, uh, uh, we might uh, conduct uh, these uh, operations? We know that uh, conflict itself is, uh, is, is the nature, is obviously uh, is, uh, unchanging, and again, that has an impact on you know, how we, um, in terms of our ambitions, are able to, to conduct, conduct operations, and I'll touch on that as well. Um, I'm not suggesting for one moment that the military uh, have not thought hard, hard about the, the, uh, the, the character of, 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 uh, of contemporary conflict or indeed future conflict. They, they have. The question is to what a level of maturity have we reached? I mean, it highlights a number of areas that require, require further thought. So in the, uh, the, the foundation documents that were circulated around the Ministry of Defence about uh, nine months ago, uh, there's quite a lot on cyber, the cyber, uh, cyberspace, cyber. But it doesn't really sort of, there's, there is an area of immaturity in terms of conceptual thinking. And we haven't been able to sort of penetrate that yet. And perhaps may, maybe it is, uh, it's too early. Um, after all, it, it's ten years after we, uh, the atom bomb was dropped on Japan before we started to think in terms of nuclear theory. Um, it, I, I think if one talks about the, the, the present and the future, um, uh, certainly uh, my, my colleagues in King's College London uh, would, would always quote Rupert Smith as perhaps a, a good spokesman for change. Um, and if you recall, he said that war, as we know, it no longer exists. It's only conflict to confrontation. Well, I would add competition as well, because after all, on operations now, we are trying to, we're trying to outperform the opposition, not just kill them. And that's the sort of term that perhaps a businessman might use. And we know it's competitive because war is about relationships of power and ideas. It's a clash between perhaps two brands rather than just forces. And we know that these types of, uh, of, of conflict, irregular in nature, as T. Lawrence said, uh, irregular warfare um, is far more intellectual than a bayonet charge, uh, and therefore we need to uh, penetrate that complexity and, and look at uh, ways in which we can sort of navigate through it. Where do we draw our inspiration from, our ideas from? And again, I'll touch on that. So war is more, if it's a, a battle between two brands, then perhaps it's a battle between narratives played out in the minds of populations connected globally by new media and inextricably linked uh, to, uh, to the fact that this new media is empowering and mobilizing masses, cyber mobilization, where perception matters. So it's not just the end, what you achieve, but it's also the way you play the game. Uh, this is nothing new. Um, uh, Robert Gates uh, in 2007 was saying about American operations, it's about shaping behavior, not just imposing one's will. So what I've begun to do is to frame war in perhaps a different language, a, a softer, a psychological uh, language, uh, less, less kinetic, perhaps less confident and less ambitious. The, um, so what we're asking really is that uh, our practitioners uh, as a broader, perhaps a, we now have a broader uh, um, description of, of, of a conflict practitioner. And certainly uh, we found from a military point of view that those leaders have to be an everyman, a polymath, and uh, drawing from and familiar with the social sciences as much as brand building, bandwidth, and ballistics. 
drawing parallels between war and, uh, and business is nothing new. The Japanese view was that business is essentially war, and that led to business executives in the States in the 90s embracing Sun Tzu as a, as a business guru rather than a strategic one. So business is war, and war is increasingly like business. Um, if, uh, when I talked about the idea of the, the, uh, the military practitioner or the conflict practitioner is a, is a much broader uh, remit now, uh, drawing from a much broader uh, sort of library of, of, of books that will guide guide that individual and his organisations, it does create a bit of what I was, is, a, is the dilemma, certainly for the military. Does the military, in navigating through this complexity, turn around and say, well, you know, we are what we are, we'll stick to our guns, or does it, ha to what extent does it do other people's jobs, or to what extent does it need to understand the wider context in which it operates? Uh, but it does have, um, it, it has and continues to have an impact on the way uh, the military forces are designed in the future. And because perhaps there's a degree of uncertainty there, there is a degree of uncertainty or confidence about how to adapt military forces. So therefore, some aspects that are, are prominent in operations now are not necessarily as well developed in, in the military as they might be, information operations being one of them. So um, Rupert Smith, uh, war amongst the people, placing civilians as a, as a target to be won is not dissimilar from any business in marketing its product or service in order to win customers and keep the stakeholders uh, happy and, of course, uh, outperforming the other brands. He also talks about the utility force in a conventional sense that encourages military thinkers to, to reflect on influencing various stakeholders in the conflict using words and deeds where physical force uh, has a role to be applied uh, intelligently. And therefore military commanders and, and uh, the, uh, their colleagues, civilian colleagues on, on operations cannot afford to be one-dimensional. But in terms of the way they, they are thinking, uh, perhaps, and I've seen it written, is that we still tend to think in a logical, um, analytical way, um, looking at end states and looking at progression to end states in a sort of set-piece battle, rather than in a holistic, deductive way. Um, and therefore, military commanders have got to be savvy in the art of influence and not simply organising uh, violence. Now, um, at the same time, as if we're drawing similarities with business or ideas from business, we know that business has progressed and has changed with the times. We live in a time of influence and not deference. Uh, hierarchies have been flattened. Compliance has given way to commitment. Business understands the power of new media and building networks and creating partnerships. The structure of boardrooms... Uh, to has um, changed, where reputation and goodwill are just important as a healthy balance sheet. And, and another connection with business is the fact that, uh, as Christopher Coker says in his recent book, A War in the Age of Risk, is that uh, we are in the age of risk, where security and risk are more important than anything else. And therefore, risk becomes the language not only of conflict, but it is the, the language of business, politics and public policy. And the problem with taking a, a, a risk approach to conflict um, is that um, it does not lead necessarily to clear messaging, but tends to be one uh, of amb uh, ambiguity. Um, 
Before I just jump into where social science and, and business can perhaps uh, add some more uh, inspiration to, to thinking about conflict, I just want to touch on some of the drivers, some of the features of contemporary uh, conflict, which, uh, which begin to affect the way that we think about strategy uh, and uh, the way in which we organise ourselves. The first, obviously, is the information environment, um, and the fact is that conflict spills over uh, out of areas of operation thanks to the information age and the idea of cyber and the cyber domain characterized not only by electronic work, uh, networks but also by communities. And uh, Manuel Castells, the Spanish sociologist, in his book Information Age and his second book Communication Power, coins the networked uh, society. And that politics, uh, of course, uh, you know, politics is war uh, by other, uh, or war is politics by any other means, is played out in now in this media space and therefore uh, influenced by the likes of media corporations and this new information doer, uh, the doer who operates in the blogosphere. It's highlighting this growing individualism and, uh, and predominantly short-termism online informality that undermines deference and has implications for authority and also for the elites. Uh, people, whether friends or enemies, are free to connect in this sort of sociological process, and this has an impact uh, on, uh, on conflict, as we know, with this free flow of ideas, ideas and grievances that fuel uh, conflict and indeed um, encourage revolution. Uh, Nick Gowen is a seasoned media practitioner, warns governments that the modern uh, communications or modern communications expose, surprise and affect their reputations. He further concludes that contemporary Western liberal democratic society, perhaps led by its media, is demanding greater transparency uh, that complicates the working of elites and their messaging. Uh, when managing conflict. And perhaps we, we see an element of that um, now where it is quite difficult to explain a strategic narrative um, because, um, it, it, because it may not be necessarily what, uh, what the public wants to hear, if indeed, um, and therefore leads on to, as I'll talk about later, is in strategic communication, it makes strategic communication quite almost impossible, and need need to rethink that through. Um, what um, so in terms of the information age is that we're, we're into the business now of targets, um, which are no longer limited to. Um, power stations and military bases, but also softer targets. So targets become legitimacy, authority and, and reputation. And I keep returning back to this, this business of reputation. The, and therefore, in the battle space now, um, informa the information element may well be the decisive, decisive part. It may well be that this begins to uh, question the way we approach strategy, the way we approach communicating in, in conflict, uh, and particularly if, if the center of gravity is now perceptual. So um, information age is the first one. Uh, the next one is culture. And this is sort of resurrection of culture within, within conflict as a way of trying to explain what is going on or, or to give f further 
um, what I'll talk about later, contextual intelligence. Lawrence Friedman um, states that operations undertaken in politically complex settings uh, can be full of surprises that often result from a failure to understand strategic cultures and agendas of both friends and enemies. And, a mixture, and the mixture of motives and attitudes that influence their actions. And he goes on to stress that coping with these new conditions presents substantial challenges to strategists, uh, as, as we have known. And that sort of leads on to uh, the, the way in which understanding culture, or the resurrection of, of, of anthropologists, you might say, in conflict, um, has informed the way in which we do security stabilization and political resolution, which are in the title of the lecture. Uh, and the greatest manifestation um, of, of this has been, really been the, the whole idea of na nation building. Uh, and whether or not um, we, uh, whether or not we, that particular solution, that template, um, is the, the way in which we can, we, that we can apply now, given the, the certain change, particularly in the information age, and that's what I'll, again, I'll touch on again later. So, um, in, in terms of um, na nation building or, or stabilisation, a number of things, uh, uh, themes have come out that uh, begin to suggest that we need to draw from other sources of, of, of inspiration. So, for example, the role of civil society was previously only of secondary import in conventional conflict is now of major significance in building stability because of governance, reconciliation, integration. Uh, other areas are the fact that uh, there are a lot of stakeholders involved in, in nation, uh, nation building. And again, handling those um, uh, and skills like negotiation um, are, are essentially non-military. Uh, in his book, uh, uh, Sword, uh, Swords and Plowshares, Paddy Ashdown uh, suggests that we could get better um, at, uh, or, or more professionally in terms of re rebuilding states, um, and suggests that, uh, that it's uh, about the quality of people. Um, and hitherto, we, the sort of people who have been heavily involved in this have been uh, humanitarian workers, NGOs, and foreign service personnel, not necessarily businessmen. And, it's, and it is quite possible that if these, these missions were looked at more like a program and adopting a businessman's approach to programs, uh, that might provide a better structure in which, in a process in which they can be conducted. Um, but also, in the way that the West's approached uh, its nation building, in a particular way, we have a template that, uh, that tends to build institutions at the top first, um, uh, when often, uh, certainly in, in Afghanistan, I'm not suggesting that you know, we can template this, where perhaps the, the requirement was to build uh, local institutions. And it was only really through Petraeus who came in with and adopted this sort of low-level idea of clear, hold, and build, where you can actually build Build, build, uh, build up society um, from from the bottom rather than from the top, and uh, and, and whether or not uh, the the whole idea of spending years 
trying to, to put in top-level institutions and, and legal reforms that are somewhat alien uh, to that particular country was the, the best way. It just seems that there is one, there is one template. And why is there one template? I think is because the, uh, it is very, very difficult internationally with donors and everything else to, to offer them other than what is, is the, the standard way in which development takes place in, in, in countries. So how might social science um, uh, help? Uh, you know, following on from the, the cultural theme, we've seen how uh, anthropology has, has been drawn upon to, uh, to provide this sort of con con uh, contextual intelligence. Uh, and bearing in mind uh, that, uh, that uh, understanding the context is what, a, what the, the conflict practitioner or the military leader needs to do now. It's rather than this much broader concept rather than just intelligence, um, looking, looking beyond the enemy. Um, and that, that has tested certainly um, uh, military structures um, in, in order to, to build this, continual, uh, uh, this wider idea of context. Now, it's certainly been successful at a micro level in things like the Helmand Task Force, where uh, the, Britain has been able to bring it at a tactical level, um, uh, a number of uh, state uh, or anthropologists or some social sciences uh, who are on the government's payroll. Uh, and you'll know that the human train teams and the work of Montgomery McFate, the anthropologist with the st in, uh, in the U.S., uh, has has led to um, a, a number of a number of successes. But also, they paid the price. I think two two anthropologists were killed on operations. At the macro level, um, I don't see any evidence of that taking place. This idea of building a much uh, larger con uh, view of what what, what is going on. Um, and that may be simply because I haven't got access to the information. So, what, uh, so embedded experts, uh, usually anthropologists, have been able to explain, explain the local culture and how important things like leadership, authority and power are managed. And more impor importantly, how local culture works in terms of motivation and how they view and understand and frame any external intervention force. So, um, you know, the way we position ourselves, you know, the, whether we go into these large bases uh, uh, and whether the fact is, you know, what, what is the consequence of that? We, we send a message that we don't trust you, but we're here to protect you. Are we sending a message of occupation and repression? Have we thought through these things and, in fact, no, we do it for another reason. Is that you know, is that it suggests that at this stage we, we are not you know we are not part of the long-term solution, but perhaps the indigenous forces and government is, um, or, or is it? Do we do it by design, or we just do it by default? Um, certainly, developing the cultural advisor role, we've moved towards this idea of prism cells, uh, where where commanders can look at the problem through the through the eyes of of of, lo of local pe of local people. And that certainly has been uh, effective at the, the tactical and operational level. Um, the, and, and of course, drawing for, uh, in terms of measuring effect on operations, uh, a lot of them are the, the techniques that are used in marketing, the sort of almost like the mystery shopper technique, uh, are used to find the sort of get the, uh, to get the vibes from the ground, to get the atmospherics, in a way that perhaps has not been done before. But it's very familiar with uh, those who are have been operating in, in marketing and advertising. 
What about sociology and, and social uh, psychology? Well, social psychology has always, always had a connection with the military through psychological <coughs> operations, more so in, in the States uh, than, than in the UK. Um, although that does begin, begin to bring a, a rather narrow view of, of understanding the dynamics of, of, of an affected population, you know, because social groups do influence individuals' thinking. But there's always been a problem with sociology and social scientists in terms of, of getting involved with the military, particularly because of their implicit liberalism. Uh, and you know, it's quite difficult to identify where in sociology the military or, in fact, conflict is looked at. If, if you look at some of the work, a lot of it is to do with gender rather than, than uh, assist it or ways in which they could perhaps explain why, why, why groups... Um, uh, the, or the, the nexus between social groups and, and conflict. Um, one other problem, really, for the practitioner is that some of the theories, psychological theories, are just far too abstract to be of immediate operational value. And it's this whole idea of trying to take academic work and, and sort of translate it to the, the practitioner. Who provides that bridge? How do we do it? And I've seen, certainly in the military circles, how um, the, what they've done is they've gone to some sort of everyman psychology, like uh, Robert uh, Cialdini's Yes, 50 Secrets from Science of Persuasion, which sort of gives some sort of uh, easy to understand ways in which you can manipulate a situation to influence um, but once again is um, uh, that has entered into the realms of information operations but but I, I can't see it sort of being brought into uh, uh, the understanding of how how to do uh, uh, wider operation rather than just information operations um, so, so what? No, what, what does all this this, this mean uh, from the social science point of view? Is that what? What are my my uh, uh, experience is that uh, first of all, it's quite difficult to to draw from uh, social science, to draw uh, from academia, in order to uh, use all that thinking, to sort of synthesise all that thinking and bring it bring it into the, the management of conflict. Um, uh, often, uh, even within organisations, uh, academic organisations, you know, people. People dealing with the same thing don't even talk to each other, and some of that is to do with contracts. Uh, certainly, uh, and that is the case in, in uh, I suspect, is the case in the Defence Academy. Uh, if what we probably need is is to draw this into uh, certainly within the military, but also into a wider conflict practitioners' um, education and preparation. So, how do we do that? Well, certainly, as part of this, has, has fallen into the realm of information operations or this, this idea of military influence. Um, is that we need to have, if we're going to take it forward, then you need to have a champion, certainly within within military circles, um, to lead for it. And this doesn't exist at the moment. Uh, there was an organisation in the Ministry of Defence, but that dealt with cyber as well and quite naturally got moved into the more technical aspects of cyber defence. So it needs to be professionalised and institutionalised, and perhaps we need a centre of excellence, but not limited to the military. And there's quite problems in terms of labelling this or branding it. You know, do we call it military sociology? Is this what it is? Or is it, as uh, uh, Darren Lawrence at uh, Cranfield talked about, personology? Uh, do we need a, a centre for military science, uh, which might be less controversial than perhaps the behaviour warfare centre? Okay, so that's um, uh, a few ideas from social science. What about business theory? 
Well, uh, business strategy has drawn qu quite something from from uh, from the military um, over the years, but most uh, business strategy tends to be uh, a one-year plan and then looking out three years. And and some businesses tend to not have a hard and fast plan, a bit like the Foreign Office, where they're not they don't have a full plan with an end you know with an end state, means and means, the way of doing strategy. What they essentially do is they look at the market and they're following the market and they're flexible. You might argue that the Foreign Office hitherto criticized for being a bit like that and not as as you know, as, as well organized as the military in terms of stabilization, you know, working back from an end state, is that they're far far more flexible. And perhaps now with the the, the way that the uh, uh, the environment is being influenced by by in the information age. Um, perhaps uh, the Foreign Office model of being a little bit more flexible, um, and not necessarily having a, a clearly defined end state, but just moving towards, as, as uh, Lawrence Friedman said recently, is rather than have a strategic narrative, just have a, a script, which I think is what William Hague has at the moment. Uh, works within some broad parameters of what is right and wrong, but he can't tell you where he's going in in in, in, Lib in Libya. What he can tell you is what the next step is in the script. So, um, uh, the way business has actually um, uh, taken uh, Sun Tzu, for example, um, uh, who, who, who said, you know, the broad, in the broadest sense, you've got to understand politically, socially, physically uh, to lead uh, for success. You've got to be uh, uh, to avoid introspection. You've got to look from the other point of, uh, you know, it's knowing yourself and knowing the opposition as well. Well, this is all true, and, and business, we know, um, embrace this through SWOT analysis and so on and so forth. And interestingly, SWOT analysis has been recently brought into military doctrine for the first time in the doctrine publication on campaigning. So I think that's all, 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 all fine, and I think that that, um, that that broadening the way in which we understand conflict, drawing from business methods, also helps to view ourselves, uh, which we, we tend not to do. Um, there's very little at the moment within doctrine about sitting back and just looking at oneself and looking at one's own weaknesses, one's own perspective, in order to shape how you're going to deal with the problem. Um, military marketing or marketing. Um, business academics increasingly view the role of the corporate communications director, who deals with marketing as well, as being centre stage. They've been brought into the boardroom. This is because of the importance of per perception and reputation. And I don't need to, to highlight that because we're gonna, we know what happened to BP. Um, the only work that's been really done on military marketing was some work done uh, a few years ago by the Rand Corporation called Enlist in Madison Avenue that, that started to look at the ways in which marketing and advertising, branding and so on, could be brought into the way we do operations now. Um, branding, for example, and, uh, uh, is the art of conditioning an audience to, an, uh, uh, to uh, associate with a given product, a personal or an idea, with a desired emotional response. And there's a, a very good book by a guy called uh, Waller called Fighting a War of Ideas Like the Real War, in which he talks at, at length about, about branding and the idea of commercial marketing. But the problem with trying to translate this to, to, uh, to uh, the conflict uh, sphere is that commercial marketing really is about a, a standard product which you all know and you're marketing it. Political marketing is about a promise that at the time of marketing you don't need to deliver on. But, but crisis marketing is quite, is quite difficult because um, the situation is always fluid. People are making mistakes. You don't always know, the, uh, you know exactly what you're trying to sell. And you've got some very distinct audiences. So, for example, um, 
Now, what, in the handling of the uh, uh, of the assassination or the killing of um, of uh, bin Laden, uh, it was quite interesting, and I it was part of a debate about you know, what, why did uh, President Obama tell the domestic audience first? Well, um, you know, well because there were obviously uh, repercussions, uh, in, and, and the style it was given in. You know, what, what, why was that? Well, it may well be because the uh, obviously the democratic population is well the centre of gravity in any irregular conflict. So I think there's some there's there's material within branding that's uh, is is quite useful in terms of the way the military and the civilian intervention force talk about uh, managing perceptions and this idea of campaign authority, which I can talk about later. This is how the force presents itself and behaves to enable its strategy, often called presence, profile, and posture. Um, so, for example, the, the taking of Musikala a few years ago was, was branded as, a, as an Afghan operation. Uh, the, the Afghan symbols, the Afghan flag goes up as an icon uh, at, at the time. Um, what about the narrative? I've touched on the narrative. The narrative is simply, a, as Lawrence Freeman said, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a story, a compelling story. And, and, and initially in his work in um, an Adelphi paper in 2006, he said, you know, how important within strategic affairs was this work, this, the whole business of getting this narrative right, the story of why you're doing it. Um, and one of the problems has been is that uh, whilst the Americans might be able to, with their level of confidence, um, and, and the fact being a global superpower can have an, a strategic narrative. But we've, I think in the UK we found it very difficult to, to craft a strategic narr narrative that's, com that's compelling um, because the idea is it's to leave no, no grey areas. It's supposed to be an alternative vision to, to the opposition. Uh, and um, you know, perhaps that's something that could come out of discussions later. Um, reputation management is very much at the core of this, and that sort of links in ideas of, of image and, and branding as well. Um, and it is core business for uh, for any for any for any commercial concern, uh, and is pretty much part of the success and failure of 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 that particular business. Um, we know that reputations can take a year, a years to build; it could be destroyed in weeks. Abu Ghraib, you know, um, the uh, uh, Baba Musa, um, um, and, uh, are sort of ideas or events that would, would challenge the reputation. Um, so been some good work being done by Gary Davis at Manchester Business School, uh, which stresses the need to, uh, uh, to match external customer perception of an organisation to the internal customer-facing employee perception of the business and, and of organisational values. Um, and that the idea that these two should be harmonised. Um, uh, so, for example, operating in a conflict zone um, you know, where, where brand and image are important, if you are to be a force for good, then this requires target audiences to understand that and for the players, our soldiers and civilians, to match that in the way they behave. Um, it may well be that they're not there in that precise moment to be a force, well, a force for good, but it may be that the posture has got to be one of a credible fighting military force. Again, that needs to be, uh, and, and therefore what they do needs to reflect that. There needs to be a, a, a alignment, perhaps in, uh, taking more risks as a result. A stakeholder uh, management. Um, we are we are doing that. Certainly, uh, my military education was in the 1970s. I would ask the question, you know, where do I dig in? In the 1990s, I would ask the question, where is the enemy? And I suppose in the 2000s, and now is I, I, in a conflict, I would say, where are the stakeholders? Who are they? Who do I need to influence? And following Rupert Smith's advice, who do I need to speak to first, and who shouldn't I speak to? 
Um, and therefore, uh, military operations in security and stabilization require commanders to identify stakeholders rather than the enemy. And that requires a, a degree of cont obviously contextual in intelligence, and also it needs to be uh, planned in terms of how to approach them, how to, how to influence them. And therefore, it needs a, a high degree of of uh, target audience and target audience analysis. Now, in a, in a company, in a commercial company, a lot of money is spent. Thousands of people are employed in marketing in order that that engagement can be correct with their customer or their stakeholders. Um, uh, no. And I think, therefore, that's why in the mili military or in managing conflict, we're seeing this expansion in the intelligence function um, in order that, or an expansion just in size, but also in its nature, this contextual intelligence, in order that uh, stakeholder management can be uh, affected better. And, and this is all about uh, an engagement policy, certainly is in strategic in corporate communications. And the idea is, is that it's not simply, this is a building a dialogue, building partnerships. It's not just pushing and pumping out messages. And therefore, soldiers on patrol, I'm talking about the lowest level now, proactively engage day-to-day -day with local people, certainly in counterinsurgency in, in or in a security operation. In a similar way, in, in business, you, the emphasis is on this sort of customer-salesman, salesperson relationship. Not all people will be naturally good at engagement, and therefore, like, like business or in the retail sector, soldiers and commanders need to be schooled in how to do this. Some will be better than others. Um, and I think you know, uh, this, this has been known, but it's, it's a question of how it's brought, brought in in the education and training. So, and, and the salesperson needs to be cognizant of the brand and the reputation and the narrative through each engagement to try and reinforce the message and build trust. And it's all about trust. Any inconsistency between, between the activity of a soldier or a commander um, and, and the what is essentially the, the, brand, the brand and the narrative is, is going to create problems. And, and that inconsistency could be as a result of changing personalities over time. Now, there's obvious limitations in the commercial approach. I touched on it earlier. This war and conflict is emotionally charged, and there's a need to, they need to be understood in those terms. But still at the same time, so I think that there is a certain amount that can be drawn from social science um, and also from, from selectively from business management, particularly corporate communication, which includes marketing, that can be brought into the way in which we conduct or, uh, uh, or we handle conflict. Uh, and some of the problems that, that they have in terms of uh, getting over their narratives, strategic narratives, uh, to some degree uh, can be experienced for those, for those who are conducting uh, sort of stabilization operations and similar things. Now, um, getting it into the DNA, well, the first thing is you conceptually you've got, to, you've got to examine this examine this because you might turn around and say, yeah, some of this we're doing, some of it actually I just don't see any value in it. And it's an interesting idea, but... You know, we don't. I don't think we will we'll embrace this. Or it's something we need to discuss, keep, keep alive, uh, uh, be thoughtful about. But we're not. You know, I can't see it being being of any of any practical use. Or you might just embrace it all. But uh, I'm not, for those who are not from a military background, I mean, uh, General David Richards, when he was commander of uh, the ARC, uh, that's the, the formation that went out in ISAF in, in Afghanistan, when he said the operation was essentially an information operation, and he, and he placed the idea of what could have been military marketing at the very centre of his thinking and, and his headquarters processes and business. Um, and, and this was all about this deeper understanding of target audiences, how they might be influenced and nudged, nudged uh, forward towards preferred outcome, with this sort of mixture of kinetic and non-kinetic, hard and soft uh, 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 levers or, or, or effects. Um, 
and uh, using this sort of combination of words and deeds, you know, how, what is said, how we say it, how we're going about saying it, who says it, and how, in fact, man uh, expectations are managed, which already is, comes from corporate communication thinking. So um, I'll, I'll leave you with a few, few thoughts. Um, this body of knowledge, you know, to what extent... Um, uh, does this need to be taken from a, almost sort of it went from novelty and now there's a week at the advanced staff course it's a year long there's one week that deals specifically with this this the subject I've been talking about particularly so sort of how to influence populations using a lot of com commercial ideas the question is uh, whether or not how do we bring this into to what extent do we bring the psychological aspect of conflict into uh, a military education and indeed where do we teach this and is it just enough to have it within a military education. Um, there was in a recent government committee report uh, from a defence uh, defense committee that said and acknowledged the need to establish relationships and cultural understanding through common training, exercising and analysis and planning. Uh, and that was a report that was 2009 and 10. So not too long ago. The question is whether or not we want to uh, try and bring this all together with, a, with an idea of a, a Whitehall Academy um, uh, uh, in a sort of French model uh, in which uh, we can begin to view conflict and these other and drawing from other areas uh, rather than simply having it uh, in, in, its own, in their own specific schools. So um, where does this all leave us? Where, where, what is the military commander like in the future? Well, perhaps the military commander could be this sort of um, spending more time you know, on operations, maybe working for a PR agency at some point, or going to some Russell Group uh, university, and then maintaining his links within the uh, alumni uh, virtually through Facebook or the latest iPhone. Uh, this free flow of information, drawing inspiration from business, academia, from military, from history, so on and so forth. This guy is or woman is multi-skilled, multilingual, multidimensional, and would be as ease running a campaign in Afghanistan as would be securing the World Cup for Britain. Uh, televisual, charismatic, authentic, an actual speaker, linking the word and the, and the deed. Um, and perhaps uh, um, you know, being on the front page of Time magazine or, or indeed having a profile in, uh, in the Sunday Times. So whether or not this is, uh, this is what we want, uh, but there, in, there is a problem because, of course, the whole idea is that this is supposed to be beyond the military. Uh, you know, war is too important to leave it to the, to the generals, somebody once said. Coin is just acute uh, politics. So I think there's this, uh, we've got to perhaps question whether or not the Petraeus factor is, is a good one, you know, because it's militarising what is hitherto not necessarily a, a, a military problem. Or are we quite content with that? Is that just the way it is and there's not an awful lot we can do about it? Or maybe they're more photogenic than others. So, therefore, uh, I'll end with war. It's obviously still politics. Coin is acute politics. It's played out by human beings. It can be seen through the lens of social science uh, with a sprinkling of ideas from business uh, management uh, where we're looking at changing behaviours uh, or certainly uh, and maybe uh, attitudes uh, using uh, a better idea uh, whether, we, whether that's force, money, word, words or deeds. And I think uh, also uh, is perhaps this, this less am, uh, ambitious language of, of conflict and strategy, uh, this limited, you know, this idea that we, you know, we, we thought we could nation build, but perhaps the model is, 
is too ambitious. Perhaps we thought we could have a strategic narrative, but you know, maybe the Americans can, but the Brits, you know, we are finding it difficult. So, you know, is is that we uh, the, the language of of of, of uh, conflict becomes more more limiting, le less ambitious in this age of, of of risk, this age of risk and security, um, uh, as. Uh, as Perker said, and therefore, you know, we're trying, like the like the, the old thespian, we're trying to leave the stage with dignity, uh, uh, damage limitation, our reputation is intact, and perhaps that's that's a, a, a better description rather than some hard end state that uh, we find quite difficult to uh, to reach and also difficult to communicate. Uh, and part of that, as I. I've tried to argue is because I think the information uh, uh, environment, the way it's developing now, it could be an increasingly a game changer. And that's where we need to start looking conceptually about how it affects conflict, rather than perhaps trying to you know, uh, uh, um, refine the whole idea of nation building, which to some degree is being discredited. I've got no idea how long I talk for. Um, I talk far too quickly. Um, uh, my script was, was uh, scribbled all over. Um, and so I said right at the beginning is that I don't, I don't I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not, a, I'm not a general, I am not a journalist, uh, I'm not a senior academic, uh, but I have played in this area like everybody else. Um, you know, I've developed a view, and uh, one, one of the uh, uh, trends that one sees, and I you know, is, is that certainly within the military, is that the younger officer. Uh, now, perhaps because he can or she can, is wants to be able to tell, them, give their experience, give their views, rather than that view being being come down from, from on high. So um, uh, that that's uh, my take uh, on the way I think conflict is and some of the problems that we've got. And the fact is, it is incredibly complex. As I said right at the beginning, I've listened to some people who are far cleverer than me, and they have all argued against each other. There is no consensus, and therefore I think there's a role for concepts rather than sort of applying, rigidly applying uh, doctrine.